Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Cultivating Transparency, Realizing the Emptiness of the Stories You Tell Yourself and Others. The talk was given by Rob Schmidt and Stuart Goodnick on August 12, 2023, via Zoom. Rob and Stuart run Tayu Meditation Center and founded Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. They invite spiritual teachers, practitioners, and authors to articulate their stories on the Mystical Positivist podcast. In this talk, they observe that we are constantly telling ourselves stories which capture our energy and attention, and that we can accept the universe's invitations to participate in higher work when we are flexible and to not bound by our stories. Robin Stewart referred to their teacher, Robert Innes, and to the teachers, George Gurdjieff, E.J. Gold, and Lee Lozowick. There is some discussion about chambers or spaces for work that can be created, about the similarity between humans and apes that was referred to in the description of the live talk, and about cats who appear on gallery view during the talk. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Rob Schmidt speaks first, followed by Stuart Goodnick. I want to make a distinction to get started, which is something that I've become familiar with from a good friend who points out that in spiritual practice, in many cases, the end result is not the same as the methodology to move towards that end result. So cultivating transparency might have some elements of that distinction that we would need to keep in mind. So that's the first thing. In other words, transparency sounds very nice. It sounds very easy. It sounds, at least to many of us, agreeable. But getting to the place where that's practical is a lot of work, I would say. Well, I think the topic of stories, I think in our description, we described that in some respects, one might say that all we know ourselves to be are the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And knowing in that sense means all we know cognitively about what we are are the stories that we tell about ourselves. Certainly it's been the case, and I think this is a well-understood spiritual concept in this crowd, that the stories that we tell ourselves are not necessarily really obvious because they're loops and tapes and vocalizations and repetitions and thought forms that play constantly within our field of awareness, but they play so constantly that sort of like the proverbial fish in water, we don't really take note of them unless they're really especially loud. So there are these loops that are going on that really construct the reality that we experience. And those loops also characterize the experiences that we have so that we have reactivity to those experiences along lines that are 
more or less defined by the characters that we construct for ourselves. So in other words, we are not spontaneously responding to the universe from a sense of immediacy or presentness. Typically, there's a delay factor and we respond by virtue of how the story filters or interprets the experience that we had. And that gives rise to rumination and more stories and more internal conversation such that we can maintain or fix the energies that we are identifying ourselves with on an ongoing basis. And again, this is something we all, as spiritual practitioners who've been in this game for a long time, know we've heard this a thousand times. This is not news. It's not even good news, as the Christians would say. It's simply our state of affairs. I think the interesting question then is, what do you do with that? How do you work with that? What is the appropriate way to work with that? Because even what I'm saying here is another story. And to define yourself as a spiritual practitioner in opposition to the stories that you tell yourselves is another story. So it's very tricky because you can't think your way out of this particular box. Something else has to take place. A different relationship has to be cultivated. So when Rob initiated this conversation with the term transparency, that term hints at a different way of relating to the stories that doesn't involve a cognitive methodology or a intellectual process or a methodology that will somehow cleanse you of these pesky little words. <laughs> That's right. And we have plenty of stories from different traditions. I'm thinking right now of the Zen tradition where there are famous stories often about how people respond authentically differently than the way that Stuart was just referring to. So it involves not just the cognitive mind, it involves other faculties and capacities of human incarnation. And that's important as well to hold as a framework for what we might want to talk about tonight. Or maybe we don't. <laughs> but anyway, it is in the Zen stories I was referring to a moment ago, often a confrontation, confrontation between student and master. In other stories, we have two masters testing each other and finding how stories may still crop up for masters who have a lot of experience in not identifying with the various stories that they've been exposed to. Today, I was just writing an email, proposing a podcast to a couple of friends, actually. And I was making the point that many of the stories that we identify with, not particularly consciously often, are actually ideological views that are present in the cultural matrix that we find ourselves in, like the water that the fish are swimming in. So we interpret things, unless we have some real history of investigating those things, such that we don't even realize that we're speaking from a story that isn't even particularly ours, but it's a story that we share, perhaps, with many people. And we reinforce those stories because we talk to those people or we have 
other forms of contact with people. And those stories get reinforced. So it's a very tricky thing to step out of that as the Zen masters in the stories I'm referring to are talking about and be transparent. Not a simple thing, or rather it is a simple thing, but it's simple because it, at least reputedly, elides that tendency to speak from a narrative that may be unique, a narrative that may be shared with others. I liked Stuart's pointing out that these things are recursive. It's a hall of mirrors, to use a metaphor that I'm particularly fond of. And that hall of mirrors is something that, unless we make real efforts over time, we're not likely to be able to see with some clarity whatsoever. There's something I'll say that I think may be a little less standard line, and that's that the stories, this whole process that we're talking about, is not in and of itself a problem. And so when we respond to the story-making capacity within ourselves as a problem, that leads to all kinds of spiritual projects like transcending our feelings or transcending our emotions or transcending our individuality, entering into a 24 by 7 non-dual state and completely aligning the whole nature of being an individual in a body. More to the point, some traditions in this program will negate the body or treat the body as an obstacle or a block to some notion, another story of what appropriate spiritual practice represents. So I want to be clear that we're not coming from that place. We're not coming from this place that says that you need to stop everything, have a silent mind, bliss out in a non-dual sense of oneness, and completely leave behind what it means to be a human in a body with a set of reactive emotions. That's not what we're saying, because we're of the opinion that we're here in bodies for a reason. This is a unique, beautiful, phenomenal, so to speak, quality of experience that you don't get in lots of other planes of existence. At least we assume. We assume. Maybe that's a story. But we assume that being in a body and being an individuated person is a problem. And from our point of view, that's a feature. It's something that can be celebrated. Celebrated in the sense that there's a uniqueness and a beauty and a poignancy about the human experience that we are able to fully embrace. Stories are a part of that. We have stories. As Rob said, we inherit stories from our family. We inherit stories from our society, from the particular historical epoch that we happen to find ourselves in. We're awash with stories. We create stories for ourselves. Other people gift their stories to us constantly and telling us what we should do or how we should be. Stories are all around us, and they're not really a problem because they are a feature of what it means to be a human being. The current construction of our neurological apparatus gives us this wonderful capability to tell ourselves stories on a constant basis. So the challenge and the idea about transparency is more around, is there a way to rest amid these stories such that you do not have to be owned by them, can appreciate them, give full attention to them when they arise, let them go when you've gotten what they have to tell you. 
and just let it settle back in. So the stories all contain information and they're like nuggets of experience. And the issue for us is when we don't fully digest the message, then it lingers in our psychic space as a energy bomb that can uh, pop up reactively and automatically when we least expect it, when external conditions somehow trigger it. So for us, from this point of view that we're articulating, the work is to see the stories as clearly as possible, but it's okay to be the story. It's also okay to get upset. You can get mad. It's when we hold on to it and turn it into an undigested story such that it continues to ring on well past its expiration date that it becomes an issue and captures our energy of attention. But just like a two-year-old, when a two-year-old's hungry or upset, they'll cry and then the next moment they'll be happy and giggling and running around the house, we can be that way too. And so transparency for us is partly about being transparent to ourselves about the stories that arise and also being transparent to others about the stories that arise, but then letting them go and seeing them fully, being present to them fully, and then just letting the natural digestion happen, let the information go into our being and bring the attention back to our present time or our uh, present awareness so that we're ready for the next event that the universe gifts us with. It's easy to focus on the idea of how we look to others, that that's what transparency means. But it's also true that transparency is about recognizing that we project onto others the stories that arise and that that's okay as long as we're, as Stuart says, paying attention to what it is we're doing with these word tools that come up for us. And in terms of methodology, of course, there's aspects of existence that include paying attention to words, but also aspects of attention that pre-exist before we can tell ourselves stories. Stuart was just using the example of a two-year-old, but a six-month-old baby is even more perhaps purely authentic and purely transparent. It's less possible for our manifestation at that age to become as mechanical as even a two-year-old, and certainly as a five-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 70-year-old. So it's important to realize that when we project onto other people, we aren't seeing them as the story that they are connected to. So transparency involves listening, seeing, being present to the other things that people are doing, the other things that people are saying, the behaviors that we see them enact, the postures. The fourth way is big on paying attention to people's postures. Gurdjieff was a keen observer of that and suggested that that was an important tool to be able to use. And the postures that we see enacted by other people, bodily postures, the emotional postures, the intellectual postures, are the subject of attention in a way that helps us cultivate transparency to those manifestations, as well as our own mechanical tendencies to be identified and to be a little generous 
with other people, to create a little space in ourselves to, if not forgive, the, quote, mistakes, unquote, that we project onto the behavior of others, but also to be simply present to that quality of mistake, that quality of story that we ourselves have almost certainly indulged in mechanically ourselves. So transparency, it seems to me, involves generosity. Generosity of spirit to ourselves, generosity of spirit to others, generosity of spirit to the universe. Sometimes the universe does things I'm not very happy about, like starting forest fires, you know. I've had a lot of physical consequences from forest fires in our area, and I don't like it. I'll give you that story. But I also get that it's bigger than any story I tell myself when that form of manifestation arises. So the universe is telling us stories too, it seems to me. Not just the product of the human mind, not just the projections that we indulge in with regard to our own behavior and the behavior of others, but the universe is telling us stories. Let's make that okay as much as we can. Let's be authentic about this capacity and feature of this manifestation that we share. So to be transparent to the story, one way of looking at that is not to be reactive to the story, which means that you can hold a story and look at it and have some distance between you and the story. Now, that is not a trivial thing, as I'm sure most of you know, in terms of your own work on self, because the ordinary human condition is one in which there's very little distance between the story and the reaction. So little distance that most people, it doesn't even occur to them that there's a separation, that the story is reality. And so in our work, there's tools that exist for this purpose. They're graduated. All of you have heard about this. So one of the foundational tools that we use is self-observation that comes out of the Gurdjieff tradition. Although the way our teacher articulated this, Robert Innes, was that self-observation is not an analytic act. It's not a cognitive act. It's an energetic act. It's being present to, fully present to, the arising of interior phenomenology, be it a voice in the head, an emotional response, or a feeling in the body, or the combination of all three of those, which is what typically composes our stories as they unwind. So being present to that from a point of view of self-observation means being able to witness it. Needless to say, for beginning practitioners, that's a challenge. It's a practice in the sense that you keep coming back to this, you keep coming back to this very much like someone who's trying to master a musical instrument will keep coming back to a particular gesture in order to produce a quality of sound. So with self-observation, we keep coming back to this, but over time, and I'm sure everyone on this call has experienced this, that we begin to see a gap between what is being presented and the immediate response or the automatic response to that. And then we start to discover that there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of categories of our interior life that are pretty easy to deal with. And then there's a few things that are really difficult to deal with. 
And then there's some really big things that we don't even see because they're so big that are especially hard to deal with. And so that starts to form the arc of our practice. But as we develop this capacity to start to see the difference between our stories and the response to the story as the psycho-emotional apparatus in the body is conditioned to respond, we can also then start to move into another realm, which is referred to in the fourth way as self-remembering, where we can see ourselves and bring ourselves back, remember ourselves in the sense of undoing the dismembering of our attention by coming back into our body and being present in our body as a totality as the experiencer of a particular story. One way I like to describe what Stuart was just discussing, to use the one word he used, separation from the reactivity that arises internally to exterior and interior phenomena and stories, is relaxation. In other words, one feature of a mature practice, it seems to me, is a kind of relaxation of the tense form of attention that a lot of us start off with and hold for many, many years as the desired methodology to move forward. In other words, there's a kind of quality of attention that is tense, tense attention. And the relaxation I'm mentioning here is, in my view, a feature of the kind of mature practice where we are not trying to convince ourselves of the story that we're good spiritual practitioners or we're anything in particular. That quality of relaxation into attention is something that we can understand as a mark of something important. Last month, Stuart and I happened to go up and visit another fourth-way teacher in Puget Sound. On the way back, we stopped at a fourth-way group in Oregon and gave a talk to a small group of practitioners there. And I think we were manifesting the kind of relaxation that I'm talking about here. At least, certainly, that was my experience. And we were then given the feedback that this was an unusual experience to have a conversation and discuss fourth-way spiritual practice in a context where tension was not understood to be a primary vehicle of practice. And that relaxation opened up a kind of space that allows for there to be a sense of humor being present. Yeah, as EJ would say, it was a creation of a chamber. And the chamber was created by virtue of the intention or the permission that was granted to relax in that space, which was, I think, different than the kinds of chambers this particular group was used to creating in their earnest study of the texts like all and everything. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Earnestness is not a sin, but it drains the energy and takes it someplace other than where we might want it to go. Yes, humor. Is that why you called us apes? 
Well, sure. <laughs> but you have to remember, I have a PhD in anthropology. So I'm inclined to view the human species as having the capacity for perhaps a more sophisticated humor yeah. than apes. Well, so I but, do want to make that distinction. But also saying that we're apes, I think, is more of a reflection of what we really are. If we wanted to be humorous, we'd call us slugs, which is what Gurdjieff does in All and Everything. He refers to humans as three-brained slugs. That's funny. Calling us apes, it may be funny in the sense that we often don't think of ourselves as apes, but we act like apes all the time. And the behaviors that we have and the social behaviors trace back to those very strong body patterns. And I just want to point out that there are plenty of related species to humans that seem to enjoy humor, chimpanzees, bonobos, other species. So some people have described humans as apes that can laugh, but we're not the only ones, I'll assert. You can look it up, look for evidence yourself to confirm or deny it. But I don't see that as being a negative judgment. I actually see it as simply being realistic. And an awful lot of the behavior that we see in apes is aped by human apes. So we can have fun with it. Belief is an emotional relationship with a lie. So I think that when our stories turn into beliefs, something happens, and that's where trouble begins. When these stories that we've been talking about become beliefs, then we have issues to deal with. And another way of phrasing what we would call the work is releasing the emotional relationship with the lie such that a belief can simply become a story that we extract useful information from, but then we can put it down. When it's a belief, we can't put it down. And when it's a belief and we don't even know that we believe it, then it operates and continues to function in a way that has energetic consequences for our ability to be present to what the universe is offering us in any given moment. You mentioned the talk that you gave to the Gurdjieff students where there was no tension and there was a chamber that was created. I had the thought that maybe when there is a chamber or when one is in the presence of the sacred, that there's an absence of story. There's an absence of lies, there's an absence of story, and maybe the presence of truth or the presence of the sacred. So are there times and spaces when stories are not present like that and running things? I think it's a matter of degree as an overall response, but I think absolutely that can happen. When I was either three or four years old, I was raised Catholic, and so on this particular occasion, my mother took me to a Catholic church. It was a high mass for the ordination of a priest. I knew that much. And this church that I grew up going to had a feature. There was a chapel off the altar. This small chapel had a clear glass partition that could be raised or lowered. But it was lowered because this was the place where all the mothers with children who might make noise were asked to go. So I was in that space at a very young age. This was well before the Latin rite was put aside. In other words, the language was Latin, 
a very different feeling than going to a Catholic church now. And I had the absolute impression that there was an energetic arising that was going upwards. I didn't have the language to describe it, but I knew as much as I could know anything at that time, that there was a connection to the sacred or to what I thought of as the sacred, at least. That was the story I later settled upon as a way to describe this experience of imagining that I could see energy arising. It wasn't that I was seeing something material. It was something beyond or different than the material realm. But anyway, that's the example that came to mind just now of the kind of phenomenon that you're talking about. And of course, it's not limited to children. I'm sure all the people on this call, or at least I'm reasonably sure, have some experience of that flavor. I call it a flavor because a flavor is not definable. We can use a word to say, well, that tastes like pesto. But there are different pestos with different ingredients. And flavors point to something that is not encapsulated in words in any kind of coherent way. So I want to just add in, I also want to be precise. So it's not the case that stories preclude the sacred. It's actually not the case that lies preclude the sacred either. In a chamber where the sacred is present, people, even if they're enmeshed in stories and beliefs and lies they tell themselves, can still be touched by the sacred. So it's, it's not necessary when a chamber is created for the stories to all disappear. Ideally, in the presence of the sacred, maybe beliefs lose their charge and stories can just be that, stories. I want to go back to this thing. A belief is this emotional relationship with a lie. We could probably say for our purposes, it's an emotional relationship or a linkage or an identification with a story. Stories are like spice. If you're in a conversation, like a conversation here, we're telling a story. This is all story. But the story provides a context for something else to emerge. So stories can be useful. Stories can be wonderful. They create a context that allows something that's not story to rise up or to descend down. It's coming from the earth or coming from the heavens. Stories create a context that invite energies to be present, especially in a chamber that has some intentionality about it. So the stories are not a bad thing, and we're not trying to make that claim. We just want to be clear on how we link to the stories and loosen that linkage so that we can let stories be what they are, do what they do, and be the kind of spice that Rob was talking about in this soup we call life. Yeah, I know you weren't saying that they were a bad thing because they're pervasive and rampant. They're everywhere all the time. But I was also thinking about another aspect of story, which is the way the teaching is passed on through stories. Stories can convey truth with a capital T. They can convey reality with a capital R. And so stories can be incredibly useful and precious and inspiring and all of that. They can communicate something quite profound, as we see in many traditions. Absolutely. There's a distinction that I have long employed. There's a French anthropologist named Levi Strauss 
who used the example of a bricoleur. A bricoleur is a jack of all trades who knows what tool works for what purpose. And a jack of all trades or a bricoleur, when a hammer is called for, is happy to use a hammer. When a screwdriver and not a hammer is used, he or she can put down the hammer and pick up the screwdriver. And that's the relationship to stories that I advocate. Yeah. It's just not necessarily easy to uh, manifest that way. But to get back to the apes, humor is incredibly important and a very helpful tool to use. Another topic of how we work with stories is relaxing in our relationship to stories and to relax this tension that we all compulsively hold because we're constantly unconsciously and consciously in combat with reality. There's a notion that relates to the three centers. So in the say the simplified form of the Gurdjieff work, there's three centers. There's the moving and instinctive center, there's the emotional center, and there's the intellectual center, which embodies experience according to the three basic forces that Gurdjieff articulates. The intellectual center is the realm of thoughts and concepts. The emotional center is the realm of feelings. And the body center is the realm of our embodied experience. So resistance Resistance to life, resistance to the world as it's presenting itself now, manifests in each of these centers somewhat differently. And so when we come to a place where we can relax, relaxation manifests differently. So the words we use for this is in the intellectual center, relaxation takes the form of acceptance. We accept what's presenting to us mentally. Emotionally, it takes the form of surrender. We surrender to the fight. We put our weapons down. We're not fighting what reality is presenting. And then in the body, it takes the form that Rob was describing of relaxation, the tensions ease. We don't have to be in fight posture. And all of these things point to one aspect of story, which is that when we have undigested stories, we find that we're in resistance to them. So things that we are in resistance to are rich veins to mine in order to find unreclaimed energy of attention that we've invested in story. And so as a practical aspect of advanced work, as we go beyond self-observation and self-remembering, then comes this topic of conscious suffering, or as we like to call it, following your dread, which is the willingness to be present to the resistances that we feel in our engagement with life. And it's the resistances, the person that you're annoyed with, the uh, situation you can't stand, the boss from hell at work that is making your life miserable. All of these things are situations that we are in resistance to. And that resistance is the product of a story that we haven't completely digested. And so Gurdjieff, and I think in all and everything, in some testimony Lord Buddha was giving, Lord Buddha described conscious suffering as the willingness to endure displeasing manifestations of others towards oneself. And in that sense, we often find from an emotional point of view that the people that we're annoyed with, even if they're family members or sangha members or partners, resistance comes up and it's a golden opportunity if we have the space and the intention to practice in that way to look at that 
not from the place of reacting to the next moment in the conflict, but to hold the conflict and to hold that energy and look at it with our full attention, with the attention of the observer function, that ability to be present to but not identified with phenomenology. That alchemical act is transformative. That alchemical act is how we metabolize the story, how we return the energy now wiser for having participated with the story to our field of attention and how we can be present for the next moment that the universe throws up. Yeah, I've been working with this idea of relaxing unnecessary tension in the body in particular and how that leads to those other kinds of relaxation you were talking about, relaxing the intellect is acceptance. I've been noticing in meditation certain posture ways that I hunch over or tension in the body. And if I'm able to literally just relax that muscular tension, something else opens up. Castaneda talks about the cubic centimeter of chance. There's like a moment when if you catch it, it becomes a doorway when you relax that. And if you don't catch it, then sometimes it's harder to get back to it with that kind of potency. Then it just becomes physical relaxation, which is nice, I suppose, but it's not really ultimately what the point is, I think, in terms of my meditation practice. Right. But you can also remember to relax the uh, intention to engage in a productive meditation practice. (laughs) But I want to add that the fourth way has this reputation as being this super serious, not enjoyable set of ideas and practices. And some people experience it that way. But a few years ago, we had one of our podcast conversations, the Mystical Positivist podcast. We spoke to the author of a book who was describing a set of practices that Gurdjieff was giving people, many people, that focus actually very precisely on ways to use relaxation to achieve what we were discussing, what we've been discussing here under this topic of relaxation. And we are three-centered beings, but that doesn't mean that the centers have to be separate. So relaxing the body can enable these other two aspects of the human organism to enter into the kind of space, especially if there's an intention to promote that in a relaxed way. I like what you said about the cubic centimeter of chance. That's because you're a mathematician. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, what I like about it is that the opportunities come up and we have to avail ourselves of those opportunities because there's all of this energy moving through the body and it sometimes reveals itself and sometimes a channel opens up and if we can grab it, we can find a deep-rooted energetic pattern and have access to it in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. And if we miss that chance, it's hard to recreate it because you can't with your mind reimagine it exactly because it was a body state that presented itself. It's not to say that there won't be other opportunities. What I take from that is not that, oh, we're damned because we didn't grab that moment of chance. It's just that it's a good way of describing how we can be present to the opportunities that present themselves and cultivate for ourselves a willingness to jump in immediately rather than to do what Gurdjieff says the great evil of uh, tomorrow and say, I'll do it later. I'll come back to that. Well, I also appreciate that relaxation can happen with the cat in your lap. Yes. 
the cats are here to teach us relaxation. Yeah, as long as they don't dig their claws in on the way up like my other one does. <laughs> that would be a not relaxed cat, I guess. I'm a little confused because at first, it seemed we were talking about story. You use the word narrative, which I can really relate to. And then stories, which are something else to me. If you could make a distinction, I see it as one running narrative. That's much more easy for me to use. And also the exercises and such as self-remembering and self-observation really are trying to get us, are they not, to the point of consciousness and where we can put attention on things. And then we can have some flexibility in this story. Isn't it as simple as that? Well, I think that's one way to express it. But I do want to point out that it's fine to describe it as one narrative or story, but then you'd have to imagine this story, if it were written down, as having lots and lots and lots of subplots running simultaneously. At least that's my view and my experience. So becoming aware of these things, as it were, differentiate themselves from an overall story. And sometimes, of course, these different strands of story deliberately contradict one another, deliberately want to engage in warfare with one another. That's part of the story too, for sure. But in terms of the direction, my teacher's admonition to me again and again was stay awake and pay attention. And that's another way of saying, it seems to me, what you're pointing to as the direction to travel or the path to travel. I want to make one comment about narrative versus story. What came up for me as Rob was talking was that the way I distinguish them is like in quantum mechanics, you talk about a wave versus a particle. Narrative is the wave, story is the particle. And it depends on what question you're asking or what experiment you're doing in your practice at a given time, whether you want to see a narrative or whether even, you want to see Even, a even physics can provide us with good stories. <laughs> That's a physics story, by the way. But I find it useful in the sense that sometimes it is about a narrative, but sometimes it's just about a particular story in an isolated or a situational case that we can work with. And so both are important, but your larger point about self-observation and self-remembering and conscious suffering. Yeah, these are all tools. I think of them in a way as offerings that we make through our practice in the spirit of awakening or in the spirit of being conscious. I think of practice not as something I'm doing to get better. It's more practical, in my experience, to treat it as an offering. So I, I get agenda out of it. So I don't have the agenda to wake up. I'm making an offering. And then let the universe do what it's going to do and, and let my larger self do what it's going to do. But get away from the sense of I'm going to practice to be perfect, which is itself another kind of story. So when it's an offering, the story's done. You make the offering, you do the, the practice, and then the conversation then is in the hands of the universe. And the universe can now speak back to you. And I love it when just the tail is in the screen. It's a fun story. We have a feline narrative. A tale of many cats, as it were. <laughs> if I don't let them on my lap, they just keep screaming until I do, right? So. Oh, no problem at all. <laughs>
just as we might be like some monk who offended the Buddha in a previous lifetime and got reincarnated as a cat. There you go. Not to listen in. One of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about, this gets back to a little bit of what we're saying before, you know, stories are a creative act and telling stories about our experience is a natural thing for us to do. We are so constituted that we tell stories. The challenge, of course, is how are we telling the stories and what's our relationship to the story and what kind of emotional energy is invested in the story. But stories are great, again, offerings to something beyond ourselves to enrich and to enliven the experiences that we have. As Rob was describing his experience as a four-year-old in this Catholic church and having this numinous experience, even then he could start to tell a story about that to hold the context of that experience. By the way, the story I told most immediately was I better not tell anyone about this. <laughs> well, that's that maybe that's a different that's a different uh, that's a different point. But yes. Not, not unrelated. No, not unrelated. Not unrelated. Not unrelated. But when we have spiritual experiences, we're definitely partaking of a realm of experience that is beyond conceptual and beyond verbal and beyond story. But when we come back into ourselves in the body, there's a very natural tendency to tell a story. And if our relationship to story is flexible and fluid, sort of like music, so that a story is more like an expression rather than this truth, then that is great. And we can tell stories. This is why allegory is so powerful, because allegory tells a story to create a space and to create a connection to something higher without the peskiness of literalism and having to believe anything. And if there's any great tragedy of our modern time, which Gurdjieff identified very precisely in his writings and all and everything, is that certainly Western society has largely lost the ability to function allegorically. Or understand. Yeah, we're, we're a mess in literalism. And that even permeates our relationship to spiritual practice where people treat ideas as beliefs or like truths or truth statements as opposed to treating everything as an allegory. Like you can treat the fourth way as beautiful and as precise as that language is and as, as much as it was trying to model the scientific language of the early 20th century, it's best to treat that as an allegory. Now, I say there's three centers. That's an allegory. Treat it as an allegory. Work with it. Enjoy it. Have a sense of humor around it. But the minute you say it's truth, your relationship to it changes and we lose something. So for us, stories are great as long as they're fluid and flexible. They're part of the juice that keeps the mental center going. And there's ways in which we can use stories to assist with transformation. Through story, you can transform opposition into contrast. So when we are in opposition and when we do have that stuck energy, a sign of the release and the integration and the digestion and the metabolization of that stuck energy is that an opposition becomes a contrast. That now it just, oh yeah, things are different. We see things differently or this particular opposition is just I see multiple sides now. So we see the contrasts and we let go of the opposition because the opposition is where our vital energy is held in stasis. So stories can help with that or stories can help maintain the fluidity 
so that we don't fall back into opposition, for instance, when we're trying to practice a new habit pattern of mind. And so we want to celebrate story as a enriching element and a creative element as part of our expression and our relationship to life. So as a practical example of that kind of relationship to story, some of you may have heard that we had a big birthday party a few weeks ago here. And having made the decision to have a big party and inviting people from every part of our lives that we could get to come, my intention, the story I told myself about my intention was not to honor me or Stuart. It was about bringing people together who ordinarily would never meet and have them actually have a good time in each other's company, actually relate and actually co-create, co-create a chamber. Although I hadn't thought of it in quite that terminology. So there was that intention that was undergirding all the actions I had to take to create the party. But then on the morning of the party, Stuart suggested that we do a ritual. And that ritual was, well, you can express it better. In our last talk in this forum, we talked about my case in particular, my work in a divinatory tradition from West Africa. And so it's all about ritual and it's all about interfacing with guides who prescribe rituals for various purposes. So prior to the party, I used my calorie shells in order to elucidate what the ritual would be that we needed to perform in order to clear the way for the party. And but it's more than clear the way for the yeah. party. It was to clear the path to the party, clear the path away from the party, and clear the atmosphere right and, um, and at the party and to empower the land to hold the space of the party right so whatever story you want to use to frame that stories which is what comes up for me plural those can be creative so i didn't have the idea of doing an actual ritual to enable this party to work in the way that i had created the intention to do but i was oh that's a great idea Let's create that story with this ritual. And it worked. It really worked. In terms of the responses that we got from people, some of them, I don't know, might have gone out of their way to avoid hanging out with each other. But they did hang out with each other. And they had a great time. And they created something that didn't exist before. And that's a use of story that I think Stuart was referring to. This idea of co-creation is an interesting one because given that we're storytelling creatures, we can co-create stories. Good conversation is about co-creating stories. It's very much like musicians getting together and jamming. When we have a good conversation together, particularly if our intentions are aligned around invoking something higher, then there can be an energetic movement that comes forward in an arc and an ascension that we feel. Obviously, with spiritual teachers as master storytellers, and we all know that Lee was a consummate storyteller, the story evokes and the story invites in energy. And so we do this with our stories when we're free to use our stories creatively. And we do this together. And so my story is not better than your story. My story may differ from your story. 
or they may be contrasts. But when we tell stories together in conversation, then it is a ritual. It is an evocation of something divine. And we can partake of that. And I don't want to frame it like, hey, that's good to do because we become more spiritual. I find that it's a blessing when that happens. E.J. Gold refers to prayer absolute. It's the prayer that gives back to the universe. We reflect the divine back to the divine when we use our stories to evoke in the way that we're describing. So stories can help us examine things that we haven't examined before. It doesn't have to be in an explicitly spiritual context, but creativity is a vehicle, I think, to see the world differently. When I was a grad student, a friend and I decided to come up with an idea that no one had ever really examined in our particular field. And we had the chutzpah to go to all these senior archaeologists, because that's the subfield we're in, and just invite them to reflect on the subject matter that we were interested in exploring that no one had explored before in their particular specialty areas and contexts. And it was some of the most enjoyable, free, creative conversations that I've ever had. And became a book on all that stuff because other people became engaged with the story of examining things. There's a book that my teacher really advocated that I read called The Master Game by Robert Durop. And in a sense, The Master Game is a book about the story of spiritual practice and how we can use it to support productive inquiries, the creative production of stories that nourish practice, that nourish creativity. It's an end in itself. Creativity is an end in itself, in my opinion. I think that's the universe doing what it most wants to do. And why not support that? Yeah, what is the secret of the universe? It's creativity. It's an ongoing creativity, endless creativity in all directions. Where's that movie, Everything Everywhere All at Once? That's the universe being creative in multiple planes of being and multiple forms of being and multiple ways of expressing. There's not one place to get to. It's finding a place where we can participate joyfully in this creative flux that we call living. Our teacher used to liken spiritual practice to the art of living. And art is inherently creative. Sometimes particular expressions of art are some of the most highly valued manifestations of human expression that we see. When I think about transparency, what occurs to me is opening to what the universe wants. How is it directing me? And I feel I have to get out of my own way, put my story on the shelf, my story about what I can do, what I can't do, uh, how things should go, and just be open to what's coming. Seems like stories can get in the way (laughs) if I'm too identified with it. That's very much the point. I like characterization of transparency as openness, because when we have the 
capacity to be fluid with our stories and not be bound by our stories when we can put them aside or evoke particular stories for particular purposes, then I think we can participate in larger scales of cooperation. We can frame it as this is what the universe wants you to do. I don't think the universe is coercive in that way. I think there's ongoing maybe maybe invitation is a better word. Yeah, invitations. There's ongoing invitations to participate in higher works or higher forms of organization, just like the cells in our body have the invitation to participate in being part of an organ. And that well for sure, but on our part, there can be an invitation and resistance. To going with that, if we're too attached to our stories about how things need to be. Yeah, for sure. And we talked about that in part of this conversation about what resistance means and the opportunities resistance presents to us from a work point of view. That's where we should direct our attention to practice to explore the opposition that we have, or the resistances that we have, so that we have the fluidity that allows us to put the stories aside as necessary. We don't want sticky stories. (laughs) It's really a visceral process. Just talking about it sounds simple, but it's (laughs) it's vital. Yeah. Well, visceral means related to the body. And that's where creativity emerges from, I think. Less obviously at some times, but when the body can relax into an openness to whatever creative impulse emerges, then that resistance can be readily obviated or we can find a path around it. That may not be all that hard to do. It seems like it's pretty basic in terms of breathing, relaxing tension as best you can, but it's a process. Yeah. The analogy I have is that I've worked for 20 plus years, 25 years with my Shakuhachi teacher. And I do a lot of lessons with him now because I'm at a point where we're getting into very subtle stuff, but I'm amazed. I can understand intellectually very clearly what I need to do, but actually getting the body to do it, being present in the body, letting my brain and my head stop and putting my brain in my body so that my body can actually do it is remarkably challenging. But when I achieve it, when I achieve it in a particular session, all of a sudden, all all the energy lines are connected and I'm in a different place. It's subtle stuff we're talking about. Past the big traumatic stories, there's still subtle stories that require ongoing work within the body and work within our emotional center to unpack. Stuart and Rob, do you think that we do that or is that grace that does it? I don't know that it's necessary to distinguish. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, it Mm -hmm. is. Right. I would say the story we tell ourselves about who we are isn't doing the action. That I think we can all agree on. If that's how you locate the self, then no, it's grace. But if you locate ourself in a broader context beyond what we in this particular configuration of consciousness can even have direct access to, then maybe grace and that self are not so different, or maybe linked somehow. Linked somehow. Or maybe to go back to an analogy that we used earlier, it's like a wave and a particle again. 
But I always have to go back to physics, baby. (laughs) I'm bound to that story. Exactly. Thinking about the negative stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves or have been told to us that we bought completely Mm -hmm. when we were quite young. I have found that with some deep inner work and intervention, personal or therapeutic intervention, that the power, the grip of those stories can really begin to lessen as we connect more and more with our basic goodness or intrinsic dignity and nobility. And that's very, very powerful. They may not go away, but even the lessening of those stories just creates so much more space for creativity. I agree. And I might even link basic goodness or intrinsic dignity with grace. And even when we have even dealt with something, we still have the residual experience of those stories, but even be grateful for what they showed us, what they allowed us to do to unpack and to come out of that. I find, for instance, that some of my deepest neuroses that may not hold my attention the way they used to do are these interesting barometers because they still give me information about the world in a certain way. But if I can be present to them without reacting, then I can use it as a finely honed instrument that gives me a message. And then I can use the message consciously as I choose to. So I'll conclude by thanking all the uh, apes and other animals, including the feline. And I have to mention that earlier in the conversation, this is very unusual. A bird landed on a window to the side of us and was looking in for a considerable length of time in the window at this conversation. So I'll take that as the creative blessing. I dare say the universe intended it as.